Welcome to the Calvary Chapel Naples Weekly Sermon Podcast. We hope you'll be blessed by this week's message. For more information about this podcast and other Calvary Chapel Naples resources, please visit us at ccnaples.org. Heavenly Father, as you've led us through this study of your word, um, this book of Daniel in the Old Testament, um, Lord, it's just been really beautiful to see uh, your hand in history. And Lord, we will see that yet even further tonight. And I just pray, Lord, for this time of, of studying your word, that you would equip me, Lord, to have the words to share, but that you would also equip the ears to hear, Lord, um, to see, to, to learn, to know more of your majesty, of your, of your goodness, of your kindness, and of your mercy. And we pray and ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So Daniel chapter 9, we're going to just jump right in. Um, if you've missed last couple weeks' study, they are online. There's also through the uh, podcast, we have a Calvary Chapel Naples podcast. Uh, Pastor Aaron's sermons from Sunday are on there, as well as previous studies and previous books. So let's begin. Daniel chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, of the lineage of the Medes. So we're now in the dealing with the, the history of the Medes and the Persians. We've transferred from the Babylonians into the Medes. And this is now a second kind of vision and time for Daniel. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, of the lineage of the Medes, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans. Chaldeans, of course, another name for the Babylonians. So he's king over that former empire. In the first year of his reign, of Darius's reign, I, Daniel, understood by the books the number of the years specified by the word of the Lord through Jeremiah the prophet that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolations of Jerusalem. So Daniel, we know Daniel is a, is a prophet. We know that he is in a foreign land. And here we read that in this foreign land, what is he reading? He's reading his Hebrew Bible. <laughs> so we're reading about someone who's reading about the Bible. And it says there that in, his, in this first year, he was reading specifically who? He was reading another prophet. I don't know if, if, if uh, Daniel knew at this point that what he was writing would eventually become a word that was just as important as Jeremiah, but indeed, that would happen. And it says that here, when he was reading, that he understood by the books the number of years specified by the word of the Lord through Jeremiah that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolations of Jerusalem. 70 years is going to be a really important a period of time that we study that has to do with both the first part of Daniel 9 as well as the second part. And by the way, tonight we are going to be only dealing with one chapter. Though next week we will be finishing our study of Daniel, that will be covering three chapters next week. Tonight we're just going to be focusing on Daniel chapter 9. So he says that this issue of 70 years is really important. Turn with me in your Bibles, just as Daniel turned in his. So obviously he also had access to these scriptures while he was in these four lands, which is pretty interesting. Remember, he left his, his homeland about the age of 17. He must have had a certain number of scrolls or parchments or something that he took with him, which is a pretty incredible, interesting thing 
in and of itself. So go ahead and turn to the prophet Daniel, I'm sorry, excuse me, the prophet Jeremiah. Uh, look at Jeremiah 25, 11 through 13. Jeremiah 25, beginning in verse 11. It says here, Jeremiah 25, 11, and this whole land shall be a desolation and an astonishment, speaking of Israel, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Then it will come to pass, verse 12, when 70 years are completed, that I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity, says the Lord, and I will make it a perpetual desolation. So 70 years as he was reading through Jeremiah, so just, just put yourself in Daniel's position, right? He's made it through the Babylonians. He's now with the Medes and the Persians. And he reads in Jeremiah, he's just having his, his, his time with the Lord, right? Coffee in hand, scone, right? Maybe it's a, add the sugar with the coffee day, maybe not. Oat milk, perhaps, in the morning. And he's a oat milk, goat milk, maybe goat milk, perhaps, yeah. That's got to come back. That should be yet another, another. <laughs> we have so many options of things, different types of milks to put in our coffees, right? Oh no, I prefer almond milk. Oh, I prefer milk that comes from ants. Anyhow, that's an aside. So he's, he's reading Jeremiah and he comes across this passage and it says back in Daniel, I, Daniel, understood. Now this is, this is phenomenal. As he was reading, he came to realize that what he was reading was about to be fulfilled in his time. And I don't know if you've ever had that in your Bible study. It's, it doesn't happen, I would say, every day when you, when you read the Word. But I'd say fairly frequently as Christians, I think we are supposed to have an experience where we are reading through something and something about our life experience comes right smack into something we are reading about, whether it's something maybe about your, maybe it's about who you are as a person, maybe it's about something that is happening in your life, maybe it's about uh, a situation where you need a certain encouragement or a certain understanding, and this is what happens with Daniel, this wonderful smack between the word and the situation that he is in. He has realized that there were 70 years. Now, just as a summary, I'm not going to go into a ton of the history because we have so much to cover. Um, the reason for the 70 years of desolation were because for 490 years previously, before the time of the exile, the exile was 70 years, for 490 years, the Jews did not observe the Sabbath rest on the seventh year. Every seven years, you're supposed to take a year off. And we're not talking about the weekly Sabbath, we're talking about the every seven year Sabbath. I'll write that here. Seven year they're supposed to let the land rest. They didn't. And so as that time was going on, the Lord was keeping track. Okay, that's one year. That is owed. And here's another year. After 14 years, that's another year that's owed to me. And after 21, that's a third year that's owed. And on and on and on until we got to 490 years. And the Lord said, all right, time for the land to have its rest. You guys are in exile. It's because of their disobedience. So now, Daniel is in that place of exile. He's reading through the word of the Lord, and he realizes that 70 years 
of exile is about to come to completion. Reading back with, with me in Daniel 9. At the end of verse 2, that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolations of Jerusalem. So he realizes this thing is coming to an end. But I think he also realizes, as we'll probably notice in his, in his prayer, which he's about to pray, it says in verse 3, Then I set my face toward the Lord God to make request by prayer and supplications with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. He realizes that there is a reason why they've been in exile. Now, we're not told before if, if he had maybe been given insight into this, or, but it's possible that he had no idea why this was happening, because it seems like at this point is when he realized the 70 years. Now, he, he may have realized some of the aspects just from the observations that he had as a young man before he was in exile, but either way, he's realizing here not just that the 70 years are over, but that there has been some egregious problems that have happened that have caused this this exile to occur. And we're about to jump into a beautiful portion at the beginning of Daniel 9 that is this personal and very intimate prayer of Daniel. And this prayer is, is just is such an amazing prayer. It reminds me a lot of the prayer that we read about Jesus in John's Gospel 17th chapter. If you could turn with me just briefly there, John chapter 17. Jesus has been, this is towards the end of his, his ministry, just, in fact, just before his betrayal and his arrest in Gethsemane. He's been talking and teaching his disciples, and if you look at the kind of previous couple pages of John, just before chapter 17, it's almost entirely, if you have a red letter Bible, it's almost entirely the words of Jesus. I mean, he's just, taught, he's just teaching upon teaching upon teaching, mostly with the disciples. In fact, I'm not sure if you've noticed this, but as the, as the Gospels go on, the focus that Jesus then places on, on the training of the 12 becomes more and more focused and concentrated. Anyhow, he gets to this point in chapter 17, and it says there, and Jesus spoke these words, lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, and this is his kind of high priestly prayer. This is Jesus himself praying, which is like, if you, if you imagine if somebody could videotape you, you praying, right? Just look into who you are, what's going on, what's happening. That's what is the scripture is allowing us to do, is to take a look. And you just begin to read these words. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son, that your son also may glorify you. As you have given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ. He's referring to himself in his prayer to God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. What amazing insight we get into who this man Jesus was in his prayer to the Father that he had glory with the Father before, that he was come and he has now just about accomplished the purpose for which he had come. 
in a similar way that we look into the kind of intimacy of, of Jesus and we learn so much about him and, and maybe further refinements about him and the Father and that relationship and this purpose. When we turn back to Daniel, we have a similar kind of prayer that we get to look inside the heart of Daniel as he's realizing these things about the exile, about the 70 years, about the Sabbath rest that was missed. And now we get to look inside this prayer, beginning in verse 4. And I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession and said, O Lord, great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant and mercy with those who love him and with those who keep his commandments, we have sinned. He, he includes himself in the community of the exiled Israel, uh, Israelites. We have sinned and committed iniquity. We have done wickedly and rebelled even by departing by, from, from your precepts and your judgments. And I'm just remembering now, actually, in this study that we had last Sunday about this issue of, notice in verse 5, we have sin and iniquity. And Pastor Aaron was teaching about this just recently, that sin is the word for missing the mark. Mark missed. Which is really a point of our human imperfection or ability to come before God as, a, as in, in, in perfection, that that is an impossibility. But then we have transgression, which is more of a willful issue. Transgression, which is where we cross the line that, law, that the Lord has said not to. He says, um, honor your father and your mother. And then you, you're like, oh, oh, well, no. That's transgression, sin and transgression. And he's realizing here that both have happened. We have sinned and committed iniquity. We have done wickedly and rebelled even by departing from your precepts and your judgments. Neither have we heeded your servants, the prophets who spoke in your name. So he's referring back to Jeremiah that he was just reading out of. We have, we have not heeded these words, he realizes. And have you ever had that experience? When you've been reading through the Bible and you realize there's certain things from the law or there's certain things that you read from the, within the new covenant and you're like, oh, I've, I've, no, I just haven't done that. <laughs> you know, he's, he's having one of these moments. Neither have, we, have we, uh, so neither have we heeded your servants and prophets who spoke in your name to our kings and our princes, to our fathers and all the people of the land. O oh Lord, righteousness belongs to you, but to us shame of face as it is this day. To the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and all Israel, those near and those far off in all the countries to which you have driven them because of the unfaithfulness which they have committed against you. Unfaithfulness. That is such an interesting word. We talk a lot about, you know, the faithfulness of God. We talk about, about living by faith and not by sight. Unfaithfulness. If there's a single word that can be used to describe humankind, though, in our fallen state, it really is this word, unfaithfulness. Have you ever tried to remain entirely faithful? Like, not just in deed, but in thought, for just a single day? Where, where, you, where you kind of make a decision, you know, I'm just going to... I am going to live 
just by faith today. And you just, you tried to work that out. Within about an hour or two into that day, you're probably going to run across something where you either fail or attempted to fail. Faithfulness is such a unique thing, but it's only when you realize how unique it is that God has been completely faithful to us and to his creation since the dawn of time. That is, in essence, that is his nature. He is faithful by nature. We read about that, and I think in Second Timothy, a similar saying that Paul comes up with there. But unfaithfulness, when you realize that for yourself, that's, that's a kind of a word that you need to kind of intake and kind of absorb in your own heart. Like, I, I see your faithfulness, God, but I recognize of myself, my heart, my mind, my condition, that I am woefully, woefully unfaithful. And again, he is having that moment where he realizes just how much has been given through those prophets, right? How much was prescribed, how much was warned. If he got up to Jeremiah 25, he probably got through the chapters that preceded it, right? And there is so much in there within the warnings that Jeremiah gave to the nation. Unfaithfulness, yes. And sometimes I think we need to kind of embrace those weaknesses, those moments of realizing our weakness, because those have the power to be actually our more powerful moments of transformation. I don't know if you've noticed that in your own life, but it is when you kind of skirt the issue of your lack or your sin or your transgression, whatever, whatever it happens to be, when you, when you skirt it or you justify it, those are actually the moments where you may think like that you're kind of just continuing on with your life. What you're probably doing is you're skipping a, a, a thing of spiritual growth that can only happen by fully taking responsibility of that weakness, that brokenness, and that sin. Confession is the thing that leads to your and my healing. Skirting around it does not. In fact, it will probably mean that you'll have to face that again three months later, six months later, nine months later, nine years later, however long it takes until the Lord can kind of bring it to your mind again. Daniel, it seems here, wants to kind of embrace the understanding that he has. When he says, I understood, kind of with that is this idea of the confession and unfaithfulness, of course, being the primary thing. Again, you have driven them because of the unfaithfulness which they have committed against you. O Lord, to us belongs shame of faith. I'm in verse eight. To our kings, our princes, and our fathers because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness though we have rebelled against him. And again, he points out the the, the faithfulness aspect, right? He, He crosses out the end. He says, but you... Who are you, O Lord? Who, who is the Lord, but the one who is, who belongs mercy and forgiveness? H- have, you ever, have you ever asked God to forgive you and you've almost been ashamed to ask him because you know that he, he will and he has that in his character, but you've asked for forgiveness before and you're like, I, I don't, I don't want to have to ask again. <laughs> I don't want to have to ask again, Lord but to him belong mercy and forgiveness. He desires for us to come before him and to ask for 
forgiveness, to clean the slate again, you know? I think, I think the Lord loves for us to start the day if we can come with our unfaithfulness and bring it before him. And the Lord is here, the guy with the big eraser. And he's like, come on. Come on, just tell me. Unfaithful? All right, bring it to me. There you go, lay it down. And then watch this. He just loves to do that. I don't know what kind of joy that brings him, but I know that's his, one of his great purposes. Sometimes we have to remember as Christians that he likes to clean us up because he knows only through doing that are we going to actually mature and grow to become more like him. Continuing on. To the Lord our God, verse 9, belong mercy and forgiveness, though we have rebelled against him. We have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God to walk in his laws, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. Again, I think referring specifically to this issue of the Sabbath and the rest, right? Be really easy, I think, for them to probably, as an agrarian society, go on and be like, oh, come on, well, you know, we had such a good uh, crop of okra last year. It'd surely be, be a shame not to have some more okra. And so they skipped one year. And then seven years later again. And he's realizing, you have set this up. And of course, for those of you who have studied any aspects of, of agriculture, we actually do practice these things, although in drastically different ways now, when it has to do with the quality of land and the quality of dirt. What do we do? We allow lands to lie fallow. When I was growing up, I lived in a, near a cornfield in, in Illinois. A cornfield and a soybean field were very much neighbors that were farmers. We, we weren't agrarian at all. You know, my parents were school teachers. You know, I just observed. I just watched the combines and stuff. But I remember there were distinctly years where one of them in the fields just looked like a mess. And I was like, what's going on with this, with this field? Well, they let it rest. Why? Because in that rest, the ground gets back its nutrients that allow it to become more productive. If you keep taking all the nutrients out of the dirt. You know, we look at dirt and we're like, ah, it's a pile of dirt. God looks at it as like it's a pile of incredibly rich minerals that are mixed together and that you can't really see with the naked eye. And so he, know, he knows and he knew that this was how things would be best perpetuated in their agrarian society. Verse 10, we have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God to walk in his laws, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. Yes, all Israel has transgressed your law and has departed so as not to obey your voice. Therefore, the curse and the oath written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out on us because we have sinned against him. Another just point of clarity. Like, he's just taking responsibility. And he has confirmed his words which he spoke against us and against our judges who judged us by bringing upon us a great disaster, right? For under the whole heaven such has never been done as what has been done to Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this disaster has come upon us, yet we have not made our prayer before the Lord our God that we might turn from our iniquities and understand your truth. Now, this is fascinating. By this time, uh, Jerusalem has been destroyed. The Babylonians took it over. I think 586. 
And also, he's realizing that even though he and all the other ones have, have, have been dealing with the disaster of this 70-year exile, what has been the reaction of the people around him and the other exiles? What has been their response to this? Think about like when you're, when you're disciplining a child, okay? I'm gonna discipline this child. I'm gonna correct their behavior by, maybe it's, a, maybe it's a timeout or maybe it's a spank, you know? And you're thinking in your mind, okay, now that they realize that there is this consequence, this negative consequence for what they've done, your hope as a parent is like, okay, so now they're gonna turn the behavior around. They're gonna come back. They're gonna give the, daddy, I'm sorry, I'm going to listen better now. I'm going to do what you tell me to do. All these things, you know. This is my, this is my daily reality, guys. I mean, it's just it's where I live, right? That's what I hope for my kids. I'm like, oh, Lord, help them turn around after this, after they've been, their Legos have been taken away or that, take away their, their Pokemon collection or whatever it is. You know, this is just, uh, it's just it's, it's how I live. Part of how I live. And you're hoping they're going to just turn around. That's all you want, really. You're like, I don't want to have to punish you again. Just fix the behavior. And, 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 and what does Daniel realize here? He's realizing they've all been spanked. They've all been disciplined. But what have they not done? Yet we have not made our prayer. The people have not repented. They have not relented. They have not turned around, even though they are in exile in a foreign land. Now, what's going to get your attention, Right? being kicked out of your land, being exported to a foreign nation, having to sit under a foreign ruler for seven years, would that get your attention? Even if that happened to you, I think for a day it would get your attention, right? As one of you gets shipped off to Aruba tomorrow, you know, and you find yourself you know, just going to be on your knees. But Daniel says, not so. Yet we have not made our prayer before the Lord our God that we might turn from our iniquities and understand your truth. Verse 14, Therefore the Lord has kept the disaster in mind and brought it upon us. For the Lord our God is righteous in all the works which he does, though we have not obeyed his voice. And now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and made yourself a name as it is this day, we have sinned, we have done wickedly. O Lord, according to all your righteousness, I pray, let your anger and your fury be turned away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy mountain, because for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people are a reproach to all those around us. We are, we don't look so good. Now, therefore, our God, hear the prayer of your servant and his supplications, and for the Lord's sake, cause your face to shine on your sanctuary, which is desolate. One of the commentators I listened to said, said this about the posture of prayer, and I'm going to address a couple of things about, about prayer um, before we head into the 70 weeks prophecy here. He said, he said, you know, in order for us to get anywhere, we have to make sure that in our prayer lives, we get, we get low, Right? Now, spiritually, that's humility and honesty. But it's also a matter of placing yourself in relationship to the Lord God. 
placing yourself low. When you, let's say you have an, an argument with someone. Let's say you've done something wrong and you come up to that person and you're like, hey, 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 listen. Um, look, I know stuff happened, but can we just kind of, can we just move on? Now, you don't know what the person's going to respond to if you react that way. But let's say you go to that same person and you say, hey, listen, I've got some problems here. I, I haven't been the best friend. And I'm sorry for what happened last Thursday. I feel really bad about it. And I really want to make things right. Which scenario, which approach do you think is going to work best in the repairing of a relationship? The kind of like, we're equals, or the humbling get low? I think it's fairly obvious, right? When we pray, one of our jobs is to go low. One of our jobs is to humble ourselves. One of our jobs is to, to and, and that's why one of the postures of prayer is, is prostrate. You know what that means? I'm so glad I didn't say the word prostrate. I've, I've confused them so many times in teaching this before. Prostrate. It means to lay down on your face. It's one, although not all, one of the postures of prayer. Why is it one of them? It's because it's the, it's the physical representation of us going spiritually low before our mighty God. It's us saying we understand how faithful you are. We understand how unfaithful we are and we're going to represent that with our bodies. It's the same thing with kneeling. Why do people sometimes kneel? Or why do they even turn their, their hands up? It's that kind of, it's that surrender. It's the lifting up of, of the Lord and it's the, 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 the going low of the person. Now, a really interesting thing that's connected to this issue of going low is then what do you do after that? You see, sometimes people go low and I would, I would just call this humility, but then it becomes like, I think it can become false humility if you like, stay there as though like groveling like a worm and you never actually go anywhere from that. Notice in the text, after he goes low, what does he begin to ask for at the end of his prayer? Does he, just, does he humble himself unto oblivion? Does he, does he say, therefore I cannot make a single request of this great God because I am so bad and you are so good? No, he does not do that. What does he do? Oh Lord, he begins to ask for things, verse 16. Oh Lord, according to all your righteousness, I pray, let your anger and your fury be turned away. He's praying for things to get fixed. Even after he made confession of these great problems of both himself and for his community. And notice how many times the pronoun we is used. He connects himself right to his people. He's not trying to say, they did it, Lord, but I've been a good boy, you know? He doesn't pull any of that nonsense. But in that position of, of lowness, he begins to ask for things, and he begins to ask for things that God does promise to do in his word, right? Does God not also promise after forgiving you to redeem you? To, to bless you, to make his, his face to shine upon you. And that's exactly what Daniel's getting at at the end of this prayer here. 
let your anger and your fury be turned away from your city, Jerusalem. And he says now in verse 17, now therefore um, hear the prayer of your servant and his supplications for the Lord's sake and cause your face to shine on your sanctuary which is desolate. He begins to ask. And guys, I don't know if you've, if you've realized this, but at this point, this is actually three or four years before the full 70-year period is done. He begins to look at the light that will be coming, the light will be shining. He begins to pray and ask for it now. Do you know it's okay for you and me to begin to pray and ask for what is shown to us at the end of the New Testament? Come, Lord Jesus, come. Every time we pray that, we are praying for something yet future that has nothing to do with whether you're having a good day or a bad day, but it has to do with you coming into contact with what the Lord has promised as he will come back for his church. Lord, Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus, come. You can pray that even after you've confessed and had a terrible day. Lord Jesus, come. Because that's connected again to his promise. He asked for God's face to shine on his sanctuary. And he says in verse 18, Oh my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations in the city. Do you guys think that God was like closing his eyes at this point? Do you think God was like kind of turning his back like, "Uh uh-huh, I'm just waiting for one of y'all. Can someone just take some responsibility out there in Babylon? Hello? No. He's not saying this because God has turned his, his back or that he's closed his eyes. He's saying, do what you do. Show us the character that we know you have. Make your face shine upon us. Incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations in the city which is called by your name. For we do not present our supplications, which is another word for requests. We don't present our requests before you because of our righteous deeds. And guys, you don't have to ask things of the Lord because you've been a good boy. You don't ask of things of the Lord because you've had good deeds. Because guess what? Your good deeds have never earned it in the past and they don't earn it now. They don't, you don't earn it. It's something he gives. And we ask of this because he is a giving God. Just think, in the last day, all right? How many things has the Lord given you. Don't say it out loud. Just think for 30 seconds. What has God given you just in the last day? Maybe simple things, maybe complex, complex things. I don't know. Just, just, I'll be quiet. Now, those things that he has given you, I don't know what they were. Were they because you did something good? Or were they because God is merciful towards you. You see what I'm saying? We have to make sure that we don't misunderstand this get low, this humility thing and make it to some kind of false version of earning. Because as it says here clearly, we do not present our publications before you because of our righteous deeds. I don't ask for stuff because I did good. Not to mean, it doesn't, and that doesn't mean, of course, that it's wrong to ask things when you are having a good day. That's, that's, that's not what I'm saying at all. But he realizes, but because of your great mercies. Isn't it great to just realize God is God? Like, that seems such so, so a simple thing, right? Just God is God. And he has a character and he has a way. And you cannot change that. 
Hallelujah, right? <laughs> Hallelujah that we can't mess that up. We can't mess up God being God. I'm, I'm thankful for that. So he says, our supplications, the things we ask for, right? And I don't know, sometimes we get into these weird things in our minds, like, well, I can't ask that of God because, well, he knows what I was like in my 20s, you know? Or I can't ask that of God because last week I was a whatever, you know? Or because I spoke this or because I thought that. Therefore, I can't ask of God. I have to go through this kind of... And guys, what you're realizing, what you're doing at that point is you're going through a period of self-punishment. That's something that God did not design. He'll ask you to repent, to turn towards him, and to begin walking with him. The, the, the thing, what does God want from us? You know, it's like, he's like, okay, you fell off the horse. Get back on the horse. Let's go. <laughs> you know? Get back on the horse. That's all he's asking for. Oh Lord, verse 19, oh Lord, hear, oh Lord, forgive. Oh Lord, listen and act. Do not delay for your own sake, my God, for your city and your people are called by your name. I love how often the pronoun you and your is used in that last verse. And this is the summation of his prayer. It's just all, it's like you. It's just you, you, you. Have you ever had just in a time of prayer where like at the end you're just like, it's just, it's you. Just do your thing. You are, you're God. Like just do, do your thing, God. Do it. You, you, you. I think God just like loves that. He's like, oh, they finally kind of, they get it. They get it that I made the earth and I made them and everything they've ever seen, never touched, never thought. Yep. It's his mercy. It's his way. He wants to make his face shine upon us. A couple things about prayer also that I want to just kind of outline here. One is about, about this issue of confession. Now, there's this story told about, about, about confession, which I think is pretty interesting. And maybe, maybe you've been in some prayer circles or some prayer times where you've, we've had to confess prayer, or just maybe privately. But there's this story that's told about a revival in 1952 in Brazil, and there's a woman in a crowded church, and she's confessing. And she says this, quote, Please pray for me. I need to love people more. Now, I've, I've prayed that before. But this, this person, this leader, you know, leans over and tells her gently, uh, Sister, that's, that's not confession. Because anybody could say that at any point. Like you're not actually confessing. So a little, little lighter in the service, the same lady stands up and then says, please, please pray for me. What I should have said is that my sharp tongue has caused a lot of trouble in this congregation. The pastor then leans over and says, now she's starting to get it. Our confession does need to be specific. Notice as he's going through here, he's confessing their specific transgressions and sins as it was related to him, as he were read in the prophet Jeremiah. So our confession also ought to be specific and to the point. When the Lord lays his finger on something through the Holy Spirit, that specific thing is what we are to confess, even before one another. And of course, you have to be, you have to be careful. You have to be in a situation where you're either, uh, that is the goal of the entire group. But even in your private prayers, be specific with what the Lord shows you. And especially when you're reading through scripture and he shows you something, a weakness, a lack, a transgression, a sin, confess that. The second thing is sometimes I think we also uh, deal with this issue of hesitancy in prayer. And 
I was reading this wonderful devotion written by the Puritans. There's this man by the name of Ezekiel Hopkins, and he wrestles with what I consider to be one of the most common questions in prayer, and maybe you've had this question yourself, which is that if God is all-knowing and all-powerful and all and he's, and he's going to accomplish his will no matter what, right? The whole God is God thing. Why should we pray? Well, there are, of course, a number of answers to this, but I was particularly impressed by this particular answer. Um, and it'll take me a couple of sentences to kind of get through this, but he says, Ezekiel responding to that, that question, and maybe that question has, has passed through your mind at a certain point in time. Prayer does not incline God to bestow that which before he was not resolved to give. Basically, prayer is not a way of getting something from God that he, that is outside of his nature. But rather, it prepares us to receive, prayer prepares us to receive that which God will not give otherwise. Does that make sense to you? Let me kind of extrapolate that just for a second or two. God has a, an, effect, uh, an effect in mind when we pray. If we're, if we're asking for something, then, and, and God's providence wants certain things to come to pass, right? But it's not just the effect of like what will happen if you pray. It's also that prayer is part of the means, cause, and order of that thing coming to pass. Put it another way, it's as though God not only designs that something will happen because of prayer, but he says that prayer itself is one of the vehicles that God puts in his providence to cause that thing to come to pass. You might say, well, if he knows all things are going to happen, then, then, well, then, then why should I pray? Well, what if through prayer he has designed that that thing will only come to pass when it is prayed for? That prayer is attached to the means of causing the result. And that altogether is part of what God's providence is. These are concepts that are very high and lofty, and I even recognize as I'm speaking of them. We can sometimes get lost in the ideas. But to summarize, put this way, if God has brought a burden upon you by his providence, if you're dealing with a particular problem or issue, Perhaps he has also determined by his providence not to remove that burden until prayer for deliverance is given. So really the idea here is that prayer is both attached to and part of God's providence coming to pass. Anyhow, if that's helpful, great. If that's confusing, then just leave it be. Last thing and I want to point this out because it's one of my favorite passages on prayer and, and, and dealing with, with the Lord and in the things that we have and we deal with in life is the idea of prayer as wrestling. Please turn with me to Genesis chapter 32, starting in verse 24. This is, of course, the very famous passage of Jacob wrestling with the Lord. I don't know how you are in your prayer life. It seems like my prayer life, which is constantly under maturing and understanding and, and seasons of more fruitfulness and less, it's constantly changing for me, personally. But it seems like one of the things in our, in our, our current culture, and of course this is just an observation from afar, is that we have lost sight of the idea of, of prayer as being a form of wrestling. May sound weird. 
Uh, Pastor Jeff taught on prayer is wrestling. Where is he going? Ooh, let's read and, and, and hopefully come to understanding of that. Genesis, 32, beginning, uh, Genesis chapter 32, beginning in verse 24. Then Jacob is left alone. This is actually, Jacob is on the way to meet Esau. He, sent, he has sent all his, his flocks and his wives before him there to cross over. He's left alone. He's basically kind of pulled a kind of a sheepish move. He's supposed to go over and meet his brother that he hasn't seen for a long time. His brother has, has said he would basically harm him many years before. He hasn't seen him for a long time. He sends all these people before him as though he kind of puts himself last. You see what I'm saying? He's protecting himself. Verse 24, then Jacob was left alone. This is verse 24 of Genesis 32. And it says, Jacob was left alone. And the idea here is that he was left alone with who he was. He was left alone with himself. Like this is him himself. He's realized what he's just done. He's now alone. He hasn't met his brother. He's in between. And it says, a man wrestled with him until the breaking of day. Now when he saw that he did not prevail against him, he touched the socket of his hip. And the socket of Jacob's hip was out of joint as he wrestled with him. And he said, let me go for the day breaks. This is the man he's wrestling with. But he said, Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. Isn't that interesting? Have you ever asked with the idea of wrestling for the blessing of the Lord. So he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Now my understanding is that the word Jacob means deceiver or heel grabber. It comes from when he was first born that he grabbed the heel of Esau. And of course, that means somebody who trips somebody else. Of course, we saw, we've seen that if you remember any of the particular history of Jacob and Esau. So what he's saying when he says, what's your name is, who are you? What are you really like? What is your nature? Who are you? And his name, Jacob, is a confession. More than just a name. I am deceiver. Now Jacob's done a lot of interesting things in these last chapters, if you remember the history of Genesis. But coming completely to the end of himself is not one of the things he has done, although he has come close. And when he says Jacob, notice what the Lord's response is in this wrestling and this asking of blessing and this confession of who he is. And he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have struggled with God and with men and have prevailed. The rest of this is really fascinating too, but I'm going to stop there for now. You see, God was after him to come to the end of himself. Why? So that he could rename him in the name that God wanted for him. Israel, governed by God. Have we forgotten sometimes that he has tried to do the same thing in us? And that as we, as we wrestle with him in, in prayer, that part of that process is just the shedding of who we are, the confessing of that. Why? So that he can, you know, put us out of shape with what we were, right? That hip, that kind of that, oh, he's going to give you a bit of a limp with the natural man. Why? In order to make you 
into a new man and a new woman and a new marriage and a new family. We are supposed to be wrestling with the Lord about these things. And I think Daniel, when he was going through that process of prayer, was kind of just just getting it all out there. It says he wrestled with him until daybreak. And then he asked for a blessing. Guys, you can come to the end of that place of confession and right afterwards, ask the Lord for much. The last quote on prayer by Spurgeon. Spurgeon says this, we ask but little from the Lord and God gives it. We ask but little and God gives it. Don't ask of God because of what you are. Ask of God because of who he is. That's what Jacob was dealing with. Who is this? It's the one who trans- can transform me. Let's proceed on. So, Daniel has had this amazing time of prayer and revelation after reading his Bible, after reading the prophet Jeremiah. And then it says in verse 20, Now while I was speaking, praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God for the holy mountain of my God, yes, while I was speaking in prayer, what happens? The man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the beginning, being caused to fly swiftly, reached me about the time of the evening offering. A couple of just quick interesting things here. An angel is interrupting and coming into a time of prayer. That's fascinating in itself. Gabriel himself being named is also fascinating because Gabriel, when you read of him in the Bible, almost always has to do with certain things about the revelation of the Messiah. The birth of the Messiah, you'll read about him in Luke 2, Gabriel, speaking with Mary. And it says that he arrived when, first of all, he came quickly, so they can go fast. We don't know if they have wings, by the way, but they go fast. And that they arrived about the time of the evening offering. Now, when's the last time that there was an evening offering at the temple? It's been a long time. It's not like, it's not like somebody else had kind of like a tiny little temple on the side. and they were, No, this hadn't happened for a long time. But it's still in whose mind? Still in Daniel's mind. The certain traditions, the certain things that have happened. This is, you ever had that memory? Like when you were a kid, maybe when approach the holidays, oh yeah, this is when we used to do this. Maybe, maybe that kind of the building of the crash scene. I still remember that when I was a kid. Oh, this is when we used to, to build that thing. And this is the first learned about the baby Jesus. He's remembering things from his past. And he informed me, verse 22, and talked with me and said, oh Daniel, I have now come forth to give you skill to understand. Wait, but did, did Daniel ask for that? Did Daniel ask, oh, I, I don't understand something, Lord. No, no, we were actually told that Daniel just did understand something. In fact, it says, I understood in verse two. He was already realizing something, but then the, the angel now is saying, I have come forth to give you skill to understand. This is something different 
and new. And if you notice this response, which is quite interesting, it's not really maybe the kind of response that you would expect after this time of confession. Maybe you would expect the Lord has heard your prayers. And you know what, Daniel? He forgives you. That's not what happens at all. I'll get into why I think that is in just a minute. At the beginning of your supplication, the command went out, and I have come to tell you, for you are greatly beloved. Notice what is told him after his confession. You were loved, Daniel. Do you know that God wishes to convey that to you after you've confessed as well? Hey, the one I love. Yeah, you, the one who just confessed to me. Hey, I love you. I love you. Therefore, consider the matter and understand the vision. And now, a vision is given to Daniel by the angel Gabriel after he's interrupted this time of prayer and confession. And going back to some of these earlier things, I'm going to leave here on the, on the board these numbers, because I think you're going to see quite, quite quickly how these numbers, about what he was praying about, about the understanding that he had in reading the biblical text, that relates directly to this issue of what Gabriel is about to show him. So this is what he realized before, right? The 70 years of exile, the 490 years without the seventh year Sabbath, and now this. He tells him in verse 24, 70 weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city. And by the way, the word for weeks there is sabua, which actually just means sevens, 70 sevens are determined for your people and for your holy city. For your people, who is that? The Jews. And your holy city, what is that? Jerusalem. And then he says, to do these things, to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Now, Put yourself in Daniel's shoes, right? You've just been confessing. You've just been saying and then asking the Lord to bless you. And then all of a sudden, these words come. 70 weeks, 77s are determined to do all these things. And notice what they are. To finish the transgression of things. To get rid of every line crossing that has ever existed in the world. Well, that's, that's, a, that's a giant order there, isn't it? To make an end of sin. Again, back to our sin transgression that I just erased. Sorry about that. To make an end of sin, to make an end of anything that is imperfect, that misses the mark. These are high things from the voice of the angel. Just one thing if a human being says, hey, you know what? We're going to make a really good thing here. But for an angel to come and tell them to end transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity. To bring in everlasting righteousness. To seal up vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy. Most commentators believe that the anoint the most holy has to do actually with the anointing of a yet future temple. So he has this list of things that are going to be accomplished in 70 weeks. And then he goes into further detail and we'll get back to all those things and, and how they kind of lay into the time here. But let's begin now in verse 25. He says, Now know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem 
until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. The street shall be built again and the wall, even in troublesome times. And after the 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. Now let's stop right there at the kind of that, after that first sentence of verse 26. What is going on here? <laughs> what is this? 77s? There's 62 sevens, and then there's seven weeks. There's seven weeks, there's 62 weeks. The street being built, the wall. What this is, is a prophetic timeline. Now we've seen this before in Daniel with certain things as far as how certain kingdoms would come after certain kingdoms, right? After the Babylonians, the prophecy was given the Medo-Persians. After the Medo-Persians would come the Greeks, and Alexander the Great. After the Greeks would come the Romans. We saw that. We saw the play. That's pretty cool. But now a new prophetic timeline is given that has to do with what? Restoring and rebuilding Jerusalem. Messiah, the prince coming, the, the, there, is, there being a street and a wall in troublesome times, and then Messiah being cut off. Now, those should, for anybody who's, who's read or been in a church for a while, those should, those should kind of, they should pique your interest because they, they, they should remind you about certain things, right? Who, who is the Messiah, the Prince? This is Messiah, the Prince is Jesus, right? This, this isn't, it's not a, a question we should be unaware of. Messiah, the Prince, that's Jesus, And it says the Messiah will be cut off. Now, did that happen in history? Yes, the Messiah was cut off. When did, when did that happen? Around 33, well, maybe perhaps a little before, because we'll talk about that. 33 AD, he was cut off. Right? And we recognize this is a very important piece of our understanding of Judeo-Christian history, right? That Jesus was cut off. And but it says he was cut off not for himself. Was Jesus cut off for himself? Why was he cut off? For us. Right? So there's certain aspects of this prophecies that we should be like, yeah, this is like, this is the foretelling of this, of this thing that would happen at the beginning of the New Testament. This is what is told of us in the gospel. So then what about these 70 sabua, these, these seven and 62? Well, go ahead and get out that timeline that I, that I gave you and start taking a look because it's pretty fascinating. Let me tell you a couple of things about, about this understanding and this idea of a timeline, because indeed what is given is to us is a countdown for two specific events. We'll deal with the first one first, which is the coming of the Messiah and the fact that he would die, be cut off. I'll get to the second momentarily. It says here, that from know and therefore understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem, until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. Now again, like I said, the word for weeks is sabua, And most commentators can agree that this sabua is more of a term of seven years. Seven what? Seven years. So seven weeks is how many years? 49 years. 62 weeks would then be, what, what is the calculation there? I've forgotten. 434, thank you. 434 years. And he says, these things will come to pass 
and then Messiah, the prince, and then he will be cut off. Now, one thing on that, on that, um, that handout that I gave you, as you can tell, because we're going to be kind of going from left to right, which makes sense. It says 70 weeks begin, and we need to deal with that first. Well, when is the 70 weeks begin? When did these first 49 years and then the 434s, when does that actually start? How do, we, how do we map this out? Well, it says it to us in the text, from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem. And then it tells us just a little where, the street shall be built again and the wall, even in troublesome times. These are the pieces of the puzzle that the, the information we're given to identify what is this start date. Now, there are four possible start dates that people have come up with. They have to do with the idea of the decree for the people to go back and, 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 and rebuild Jerusalem and the temple. But let's notice specifically from the text, what does it actually say? Does it say anything about rebuilding the temple? Look at it quickly. Read through it. Is there anything about the temple? No, there is not. It says restore and build Jerusalem. And it talks about the street and the wall. So of the four options, there's an option of Cyrus that gives Ezra and the Babylonians the right to, to rebuild the temple in 538. There's the, the Darius decree given, given to Ezra in 517 BC to write the right to rebuild the temple. Again, those first two have to do with the building of the temple. And that's not mentioned in the text. The third option is that... Um, Artaxerxes uh, speaks to Ezra in this is from 458 BC about supplies and safe passage to go to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. And then the fourth one is another decree by Artaxerxes to Nehemiah. And this is in Nehemiah chapter two, verses one through eight. That specifically says this. They have permission, passage supplies to return to Jerusalem to rebuild the city and the walls. Of all the four, the only one that matches every specific detail that is given to us in this prophetic account that tells you about the start line of this kind of prophetic calendar is the fourth one. And we know this in history of that date as being the first of Nisan, not just a car, in 445 BC. In our modern calendars, that's March 14th. 445 BC. And let me just check my notes, make sure I didn't go 445. Yeah, it's 445. Now, much of what I'm teaching tonight about this is not my own, my own study. It's stuff that I've, I've looked at and researched. And there's two specific people that I have to give reference to as far as if you're interested in looking into more of these things, because this is pretty incredible stuff. The first is I, I, a lot of the study comes from uh, commentaries by David Guzik. He's an amazing scholar. He's a Calvary Chapel pastor um, out in California. Um, really amazing uh, work and commentaries. And, but the second one is an older English fellow by the name of Sir Robert Anderson. Sir Robert Anderson wrote a book called The Coming Prince. And this was back, I think, in the 1800s. And he went through in detail about how exactly this whole prophetic record comes together. So I'm giving you kind of like the summations and the main points, even though it's a lot of detail, there's so much more. But if you're interested, Sir Robert Anderson, David Gusick, very good research. And there's, there's plenty of others as well. So anyhow, now in order for us to then go forward from this date 
we need to then know one more piece of information. So we've, we've traced down the kind of the start of this prophetic clock, if you will, the start. First of Nisan, 445 BC. We need to also identify with it what it means by 49 years. And this is something that, that Sir Robert Anderson really wrestled with in order to come to understanding. And, and he, was, he was dealing with like, well, if, if, the, if the years that we deal with are with our modern years, which are 365 and a quarter days, right? We have four years and we have that leap day that kind of creeps in there. Anybody know anybody who's born, who's born on one of those leap days? Are you? Are you just, oh, so yeah. So, you know, they're the kind of people who like, you know, when you're, when you're 40, they're like, oh, I'm 10, you know? And you're like, come on, you know, but they actually, anyhow. Um, but that's not the way the Hebrew calendar worked. It was a lunar calendar. It was based on a 360-day year. And every once in a while, what they would do is when then things got kind of all wacky, wacky, they would add in a month. You know, we add in the quarter day and the day every four years. Every couple of years, they would have to add in a month. 360 days per year. And what he began to do when he began to kind of learn, learn, learn and, and, and figure out that, that start date, when he began to learn what exactly, what kind of calculations we're talking about here, that these years really were best translated into days in order to find out the specific information of the specific dates that he was just referring to. And when he, what he found out with, and you'll see this on the timeline here, is that first of all, we have the seven weeks, and that seven weeks is 49 years or a certain number of days. I, I forget exactly the number right now. But, but that leads us right up to the end of the Old Testament. And I don't know the specific day because I didn't look that up specifically, but it marches with the writing of the final book of the Old Testament of Malachi and the end of that, that, that kind of record of Old Testament scripture. By that time, also Jerusalem had been restored. So we read about this, the street shall be built again and the wall, even in troublesome times. Seven weeks and 62 weeks. So that, seven, that first seven weeks kind of gets, gets us to the, the end of this just the kind of the period of history just after the exile, right? The rebuilding of Jerusalem, the rebuilding of the temple, the rebuilding of the walls, and then eventually the final giving of that last prophetic book, Malachi. And then there was almost a 400 year of silence, scriptural silence, before the beginning of the New Testament. Now, what about the 62 weeks? Well, check it out here. At the end of the 62 weeks, which is 434 years, we add those together, we get 483 years, and that's translated, when you add those together, 483 years, yeah. 483 years. When you translate that into 360 days, you come up with this, equals 173,880 days. I think we should get some, uh, some t-shirts printed up that just say this number. So that people will be like, what is that number all about? Oh, well, let me tell you. Or maybe get some bumper stickers and just put that on there, you know? People are always having these bumper stickers with kind of these odd things. Sometimes I think it helps to kind of draw people's interest in if you don't tell them what it's about, actually. That's another aspect of evangelism we won't get into for right now. 173,880 days. And he did his calculations. This is Sir Robert Anderson, of course. And he ended up at a particular day in history. 173,880 days after 
the first of Nisan, 445 BC, puts us at April, in our modern calendar, April 26th, 32 AD. Now, what's important about that day? <laughs> uh, Pastor Aaron, yes? <laughs> that's Palm Sunday, that's right. That's the day when Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem on a donkey, foretold to the prophet Zechariah, chapter 9. Now, interestingly, it says, until Messiah the Prince. Well, there was something really interesting about what happened, if you turn with me to Luke 19, about that tells us a little bit more detail about the fact that he would come and what happened on that day when he did. First of all, there was a lot of preparation. Remember him saying, I'm going to, um, I need you to go into the village and get a colt. This is at verse uh, 30 of Luke 19. So there's, there's that. There's a lot of preparation. And he says, the Lord has need of it. He's, he's, been, he's been a little bit mysterious with his disciples. You know, I can imagine this conversation. Why do we have to go get a donkey for Jesus? He could just fly in there. And then... They, um, the people come and they, uh, they throw their clothing. You guys remember Palm Sunday and all this kind of stuff that we, we've uh, celebrated more, um, in, in you know, years past. And it says in verse 40, because people are yelling out and they're saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, which is definitely a messianic reference, and peace in heaven and high glory in the highest. And the Pharisees called out and rebuked him from the crowd, teacher, rebuke your disciples. And you know, many times Jesus, when people would identify who he is, he'd be like, yeah, let's just, let's kind of, let's, let's, let's keep that on the DL. But not this day. He says, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. He's like, this, this day, this is a day of triumph. This is a day of arrival. This is a day where he like kind of confirms publicly his princehood, right? The fact that he is the son, that he is the Messiah. And it says, just going on, as he says, as he drew near in verse 41, he saw the city and he wept over it. And he said to them, if you had known, even you especially, in this, your day. Why would he expect them to know something unless they had been given information that they should have known? The things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you, and close you in on every side, and level you and your children within you to the ground, and they will not leave in you one stone upon another, because you did not know what the time of your visitation. He's like, I came to visit you. There was a time, there was a season, and there was a day, this day. He points very specifically within that, the fact that there was something to be known about this day. And through Sir Robert Anderson's research, I think we can fairly accurately assess that the reason why is because it was foretold to happen. And not only that, but the prophecy goes on to say, and after the 62 weeks, which is, again, this is a week before his crucifixion, and after the 62 weeks. Now, that's the 62 plus the 7, so that's actually after 69, just to be clear. Messiah shall be cut off 
but not for himself. And what do we just read about what he said? The things, I came to the city, the things that came for your peace. He comes not to be cut off for himself, but for us. Now let's continue on, because as you could probably figure out, we've covered 62 plus 7, which is 69 weeks, but this is a 70-week prophecy. So what about that? Well, let's dig into that. Notice that at the, in, in within one of the, the portions that I read within Luke 19, that Jesus said, but you didn't recognize it, and what we said, what will, what will happen, what will come? That basically things will be destroyed. Well, that's what we're going to get into in the next little part here. Read with me. Verse 26, now beginning in that second sentence, after, but not for himself, it says, and the people of the prince who is to come. Now, he's Messiah, the Messiah, the prince is Jesus. Here it says, and the people of the prince who is to come. That's a yet future prince. Shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end of it shall be with a flood until the end of the war desolations are determined. Now, Jesus was killed in 32 AD. Around 70 AD, an incredible thing happened within the Romans, under the Roman rule. Titus came and destroyed Jerusalem and the temple. In fact, in the fulfillment of what was spoken there in Luke 19, which again, still previous, prior to the fulfillment of the Romans' destruction, is that when they came in, they, um, they burned the temple. And the temple was destroyed, but a lot of the gold melted in the burning, and in order for them to get the gold out, they actually had to remove one stone from another in order to dig out that which had melted, which is a direct fulfillment of what happened in the prophetic account that Jesus tells us in Luke 19. But back to this prophetic record, it says, and the people of the prince who is to come. Now, we, dis- we discussed this, this issue of the Antichrist and the fact that he would come during a time of a probably a reformed Roman emperor because of the fact that, that Rome was described to us in those prophetic dreams as being the iron and then later the iron that is mixed with clay and the 10 kings. We talked about this in Daniel 7 and 8. The people of the prince who is to come, the prince who is to come is who? the Antichrist. And who are his people? The Romans. Now at this point, there is kind of an interesting kind of split within the prophetic record because there is in, in basically in essence a kind of a pause button, so to speak. Let me just f- finish reading the end of it and I think I'll, you know, I'll, I'll kind of help explain to you why that is. So the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. That was accomplished in 70 under D, AD under the Romans, under Titus. And the end of it shall be with a flood until the end of the war desolations are determined. And I personally believe that that was referring to the fact that now a kind of a spiritual war between like the church, which began shortly after that with Pentecost. You can see that on, on your calendar here as well. That there would be a war until... The end, and this is this is this is what I spoke of last week when I said that much much biblical prophecy has a, a prior fulfillment and it has a, a a secondary fulfillment. Are you guys okay if I um, erase some of this over here on the right? Okay. 
And I mentioned this last week because, again, it's coming up for us again in the understanding of this is that often the prophetic record does have a prior, but it also has a later fulfillment. And oftentimes the thing that is given in between those two times is the church age, which is where we are right now. Probably, probably right about here. Probably. Yeah, let's, let's, uh, let's, let's all do Pastor Aaron's Superman thing. Is that good enough? I was working on it. I didn't work on it, but I should work on it. So he's mentioning the, the Romans, the people of the princes to come, and, and the fact that, that this, but then there's this, like, but there's a later fulfillment as well. And look at what happens here. Then, verse 27, remember there's, there's the war, desolations are determined, and Again, you can kind of summarize that into the kind of the church age and the, the wars and back and forth that have happened along, along the while, this 2,000-year period. It says, Then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. What is one week? This is the 70th week. Now notice, there's a lot of stuff that's supposed to have happened between the 69 and the 70th. And he says at the beginning, Then... He shall, for, which I, the idea again is that stuff is happening and then this like this clock clicks back into play. And again, just to point this out, the prophecy was given at the beginning of, of, of chapter nine, verse 24, 70 weeks are determined for the church. No, wait, wait. 70 weeks are determined for Calvary Chapel. No, 70 weeks are determined for who? Your people. And for your holy city. Now, if at the end of those 69 weeks, and then we just had one more 70, 70th week, which would be another 49 years, that would place us at around just after 70, 80. And he says that after the 70 weeks, everything is supposed to be finished. To finish the transgression, has transgression been finished in your lifetime? Have you seen an end to transgression? I have not. To make an end of sins, have you seen sin just stopping? Oh, I, I, don't you wish it would? But it hasn't. This was not fulfilled before. This was not finished in 70 AD. This was not, and, and, there, and just so you know this, there are a number of people and a number of, of, of Christian persuasions that, that may be very faithful and may know Jesus Christ, and I hope they do, but who have this kind of weird, wonky way of interpreting this that has nothing to do with Israel and the church as being two separate entities and yet who both have to come by faith to Christ. This church age is, is this kind of this pause button because Israel is the focus afterwards. I'm sorry, but prior, and it will also be the focus of God's eye after the end of the church age. And what, the, what is the end of the church age? It's the rapture of the church. Seventy weeks for your people and your holy city. Then he, that's the prince of the people who will come, right? Then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. And the idea is that the idea is that he is making a covenant or a treaty or agreement with the nation of Israel. Now there's a lot of there's a lot of theories as to how this happens. Most people think that what is happening here, described here, is the fact that some great world leader, which is going to be the Antichrist, that's the prince of the people who will come makes an agreement with Israel to most likely allow them to rebuild their temple. Now, that's a theory. It's a very plausible one, though. 
Because exactly what has been hoped for by almost every single world leader within, at least within my lifetime and looking back previously up until the time when Israel became a nation, which was in 1948, people have been trying to, like, well, let's have peace in the Middle East. How many times have you heard that phrase, peace in the Middle East? I remember when I was younger in the 90s and Bill Clinton, and they, they tried to sign that, the, the treaty, this treaty at, at, at Camp David, and everybody's like, oh, he did it, peace in the Middle East. That did not last. And the next one didn't either. And the one after that. So the idea is that this Antichrist is going to be one who really brokers this major peace deal. And he allows the temple to be built. The temple currently doesn't exist. Right now there's a mosque called the Dome of the Rock. What would happen if a world leader came up signed a treaty with Israel, allowed them to rebuild their temple. Probably most people in the world would be like, oh, they finally did it. They got, what is the thing people are always asking for? World peace. Well, what does it say? He shall confirm a covenant with many for one week, one period of seven years. Have you ever heard of a seven-year period that ended up being a bad period of seven years? There's this thing in the book of Revelation called the Tribulation. Matches pretty well. And what happens in the middle of that tribulation? If you read through Revelation, you realize that three and a half years in, things get worse. And it says here, but in the middle of the week, what's the middle of seven? Three and a half. Excellent, Pastor Aaron. (laughs) Have you been studying this too? But in the middle of the week, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of of abominations shall be one who makes desolate, even until the consummation which is determined is poured out on the desolate. And we were studying this with that wonderful other historical figure that represents the kind of anti-antichrist, which is Antiochus Epiphanes, who within his time came in and did this abomination of desolations, right, by offering a, uh, putting an altar of, of Zeus in the temple and, 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 dist- and, uh, and, and sacrificing a pig and spreading its juices all over. And this was, this was before the time, way before the time of Christ. Antiochus and Epiphanes, remember, he comes from the lineage of the Greeks. He comes out of the Seleucids. And again, we're told of a time when an end to sacrifice and offering. And I don't have time to go into every single detail, but within, within what we're told in other prophetic accounts, there will be an antichrist who comes and puts an end to sacrifice and actually pronounces himself as God. He, does, he goes one further than Antiochus Epiphanes. He pronounces himself to be God. And that's when, according to the scriptures, the great tribulation, the last three and a half years comes and on the wing of abominations, right, shall be one who makes desolate, someone who just tries to destroy the entire process, tries to put themselves in their pride as being so great and so mighty. This person who has brokered this perhaps great peace treaty between Israel and the world and is seen as a, is an amazing, amazing politician turns on the very people that he made an agreement with. 
even until the consummation which is determined. That means the end of that period. And thank the Lord that it's just a seven-year period and it has an end. What will happen after that will be the beginning of the millennial age when Jesus Christ comes back to rule and reign on the earth for a thousand years. But now we have an answer to this question that was presented to us before. We had the 69. What about the 70th week? And what is again the 70th week? The 70th seven? It is the tribulation. And as soon as the church goes up, the clock starts again. And we have our final seven. We have our final week. And after that, think. What is the promise made again? To finish the transgression. To make an end of sins. To make reconciliation for iniquity. To bring in everlasting righteousness. To seal up or accomplish all vision and prophecy. And to anoint the most holy. A temple would have had to been built to then be anointed later where Christ would serve. And if you read in other prophetic accounts, for example, in Ezekiel, there's this idea that there will be a temple during this final time. Guys, this prophetic calendar, this prophetic working out of the 70 weeks prophecy about the Messiah and the specific day that he would arrive, April 26, 32 A.D., about when he would be cut off, about what those first seven would be at the end of the, end of the Old Testament being written, about the, the, the arrival of Rome in 70 AD and the destruction of that temple, about that later that temple having to be rebuilt under some situation. How is it going to be built? By within the 70 weeks and this treaty being signed and that 70 weeks and that 70th year, all given to Daniel. Why? Because Daniel realized when he was reading his Bible study this kind of weird, interesting, parallel mirror thing, he realized that for 490 years, they had skipped a Sabbath, and he recognized something about the 70s and the 70 years and the exile. And it became something so real to him that it led him to prayer and confession. And that prayer and confession, remember what I told you about what does prayer do? What, what does the process of prayer do? It perhaps is the part of what and how God accomplishes his divine providence. And now we see on the other side of that prayer, the revelation of the 490 given in such amazing detail that would tell about when the Messiah would come, when the Messiah would be cut off, and ultimately when the Messiah would come back to rule and reign after the 70th seven. Now, I don't have that much expectation for my next time in prayer with the Lord. But it's pretty amazing to realize that this chapter simply began, this time of Daniel's revelation of this prophetic calendar began simply by Daniel doing what you do every day as believers. Just burying your head and your nose again in that great book and then realizing some things about who you are and what you are. And guys, that's how the Lord works in our lives. And in this particular instance, that led to the incredible giving of this prophetic calendar that gives me, I don't know about you, but incredible confidence in the will and the way and the workings of the Lord Almighty.
get to your question in just a second. Let me pray, and then we'll get to it. Shall we close? Heavenly Father, thank you so much for, for what you did through Daniel, Lord, those many, many years ago. That is, he sought you and he sought to understand what was going on in the Bible, that you gave him then this much more in the prophetic account, this amazing, amazing recipe and this amazing countdown of when the Messiah would come, when Jesus would come. And he would be cut off for our, for our benefit, for our peace, as Jesus said. Thank you so much for, for this, this sure word, Lord. Would you burn it into our hearts so, I, so we remember uh, what you have done. May you help us to, to pray with this kind of urgency and confession that, that Daniel had. And may you help us to remember and share this amazing truth, this amazing countdown with whomever you would lead us to share it with. We thank you, Lord Jesus. We honor you. We remember that it is you who are the one who forgives and the one who gives mercy. And we thank you for who you are. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.